Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So yesterday marked one year since President Joe Biden was declared the winner of the 2020 presidential election. But as we all know and remember, that election was not the end of the story. Biden's victory over then-President Donald Trump sparked the beginning of a really dark and insidious attempt by Republicans and other conservatives to overturn the results of the election. It was a decision that suddenly called into question the stability and security that we have all come to really count on in our own democratic system and that we don't always see in forming democracies all over the world. And of course, that calling into question of the election resulted in the violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Now, a lot of Americans would like to forget that day, to put it in the past and move on to times that feel a little better and more normal. But People who have studied January 6th and the growth of right-wing authoritarianism that created it say our democracy could still, today, just be hanging on by a thread. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, and we want to talk all hour about those threats to our democracy and what's being done to protect it. A little later, we're going to hear from a Republican strategist and a libertarian scholar who are both trying to call attention to all of this. And that's a great reminder that it is not all conservatives uh, who are joining this band of folks who are questioning our elections. There are a lot of really right-minded and fair people on the right who are just as fearful of what's going on as people in the middle and people on the left. But first, we want to start the conversation with Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, who's going to talk to us about what's being done here to make sure our elections are not hijacked in the coming years. Jocelyn, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen, and thanks for having this really important conversation. I can think of no issue more paramount to this moment than this. Sure. So I I, want to, before we get to the conversation, there are words being tossed around like disarray and chaos to describe this situation with the questioning of our democracy. I wonder if you use words like that. I I, want to first get a sense of how serious and how threatening you believe all of this is. I think it's extremely again, the paramount issue of our time, I think. Everything that we endured, that I you know, lived through personally every day in the you know, 70 so days between the closing of the polls in November and, and the inauguration in January of this year, um, and even the tragedy at our Capitol on January 6th, that um, and the biggest shortcoming that I experienced for myself and, and my work is that, I, is that I underestimated how far people would truly go to try to block the will of the people and advocate in courts of law for entire states' votes and electors to be tossed out based on nothing, based on no evidence, based on no, um, no nothing to indicate that the results were anything other than an accurate reflection of the will of the people. Hmm. And that's terrifying, but also in the year since, 
we've only seen that just that work escalate and, and extrapolate into many ways, many fronts and many avenues. And what it's a reflection of to me is that there have yet to be real consequences or accountability for anyone, particularly leaders, leaders or people in positions of authority who use that authority to try to undermine the election. And until there's consequences, we have to just assume that it's only going to increase and the efforts to succeed will likely um, you know, increase in likelihood and intensity, if nothing else, in the, in the months and years ahead. So I want to start our conversation off with a clip from the Washington Post's Robert Costa. He was talking with Terry Gross on Fresh Air late last month about Peril, which is the new book that he has written with Bob Woodward about what happened leading up to, during, and after the January 6th uh, insurrection. Here's what he said. Trump's efforts continue to smear Biden's election and to stoke Republicans in the states to get elected to municipal positions, to get elected to state election offices, so they're in more of a position to help him come 2022 or especially in 2024. And I, and if you listen to Bannon's podcast, I know people love fresh air, but sometimes it's worth listening to stuff like this because you realize Bannon is on air along with a lot of other conservative personalities urging people to run for office and election positions to help Trump next time around. This is an active movement. They're taking action. They're not just complaining about the election. They're trying to get power and, and hold power and make sure that next time, regardless of what happens, they win. They win. He's saying that there are all of these efforts to make sure that no matter what the American people might want or how they might vote, that there are some Republicans and some conservatives who are busy trying to make sure that things turn out the way that they want at the polls. So, Jocelyn, I want you to talk just a little about what that looks like here in Michigan and what's being done to make sure that it doesn't result in the kind of election chaos that they're trying to foment. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that there's kind of two two tracks here. One is what can actually happen, and two is the perception that is created through the through the events, a perception of an instability, that democracy is unreliable, that leaders are, are um, you know, not, uh, you know, ac- accurately elected. So that perception, to me, is, is part of the strategy, and it's something we have to pay attention to, even if the efforts to actually block the results of an election fail. And that's somewhat of what we're living now, but we can talk more about that. But with that, that, that said, you know, in my view, first, democracy prevailed in 2020 because of two things. One, an enormous number of people voted more than ever before, and good people on both sides of the aisle did the right thing, followed the law, and ultimately chose to protect the will of the voters. And, uh, and, and so that said, Michigan has a number of laws and structures to that end to ensure that the accurate final results coming out of the state are an accurate reflection of the will of the voters. We've got, you know, statutory deadlines for post-election processes to ensure timely certification and ease and transfer of power. Uh, we've got canvassing boards on the county level and state level that have a bipartisan balance and clear provisions mandating and explaining what their role is and isn't. So if someone fails to to you know can't to certify uh, a election that they they should legally and they're legally responsible for doing so, the courts would typically step in and mandate that certification. 
And we also have a faithless elector provision, which replaces an elector who refuses to vote for the winner of the of Michigan's vote, popular vote. So there are a number of pr- provisions in place to protect against election subversion. However, they all depend on, um, for the most part, one, individuals in various positions doing the right thing and the courts enforcing the laws. And then again, remember, all of this and what we really battled in 2020 wasn't just you know, a real effort to block the will of the people, but an effort to sow chaos and confusion, as you mentioned earlier, to create a perception of illegitimacy of the elections, of our democracy, of the leaders. And that, I, you know, I, I would argue is, is just as much a part of this subversion strategy as mm. that to actually uh, succeed in, in overturning or blocking election results. Mm. So Craig Mogger of the Detroit News reported recently that uh, Republican Party leaders across the state are working to replace incumbent county election officials with newcomers, something we've talked just a little about. And some of those uh, folks are people who sought to undermine the public's faith in the 2020 vote. That seems to me to be maybe one of the most critical challenges we could face is if somebody Mm -hmm. who is in charge of the elections or in charge of uh, certifying an election is is somebody who doubts the the the, the validity of the election itself. So, uh, how do you how do you make sure that that doesn't cause the kind yeah. of chaos that they're looking for? I think three things. One on the front end, we're working now, and we've seen this in Detroit, which had you know fully balanced poll books and precincts in the August election uh, to you know eliminate any potential. Um, and, and, and it's potentially impossible to do this, but work to eliminate any potential things that people could seize upon, you know, wrongfully so, but still seize upon to use as justification for not certifying. And that's kind of what we, we saw in, in 2020. So one, you know, work towards, it's hard to ever have a perfect election where, you know, everything is, is perfection, but still work towards that and work with our clerks to ensure that our processes are as smooth and, you know, and, and perfect as possible. And then secondly, uh, we have to assume, because this is a national strategy, that there will be people in positions of authority, be they local election administrators, be they state election administrators, be they county canvassing board certifiers or state. We, we have to just work from the assumption that, that, that there's such a comprehensive effort to put people in those positions who are willing to overturn a block election result that some folks are going to uh, get through or be, be, be in those positions in 22 or, or likely 24, even if they weren't in 20. And so, you know, working through to prepare for any legalities that uh, would emerge if, uh, if someone in a position of authority, an election administrator, fails to do their job under the law or, you know, a member of, of, of the canvassing board and prepare for that, prepare for all those scenarios to ensure the results are protected. And then the, the final thing, again, is, is recognizing that, that the perception is part of the strategy, too, and work to educate poll workers, encourage the public to be poll workers, really work to engage as many members of the public as possible. And this is not easy, but to, to place that as a priority so that they are educated and informed as much as possible prior to anything happening that they are able to tell the difference between fact and 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 um, and, and falsehood, uh, and uh, we found that to be an effective strategy in countering efforts to 
misinformed citizens about their right to vote absentee prior to election day, uh, blocking, you know, stopping robocalls by educating citizens ahead of time on how to vote absentee. So that pre-education is one of the best counters to misinformation and misperceptions. Again, none, none of these are foolproof strategies, but there's three significant things that we're focused on, among many others, to prepare for the worst case scenario in 24. I'm talking with Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson about the efforts to undermine confidence in our election system, not just here in Michigan, but all around the country, something we have seen really take off since the 2020 presidential election and really form into a rather organized movement to try to not just uh, erode confidence in our election systems, but in some cases to try to elect people who will help run elections who don't believe that elections uh, are done fairly. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. How worried are you about the resilience and stability of our elections? Do you think people who seek to overturn the results of free and fair elections might be able to pull off that uh, overturning in the future by getting elected to positions of responsibility. And let us know how much faith you have that the walls that stood in the way of Donald Trump and Republicans in 2020 will hold in the future. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's start today with Hunter in Detroit. Hunter, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, in following, following the news, I... I saw the Republicans in Michigan put forth a bunch of bills to, to, to suppress votes, like increasing voter ID, et cetera. However, there was, there was one measure that involved um, a requirement that voting machines remain disconnected from the Internet until a certain point, like tabulation or I forget exactly what point. But um, I was kind of, that seemed like a no-brainer that, yes, they should remain disconnected from the Internet because then there would be no possibility that anyone could claim, oh, they've been hacked because if there's an air gap, they can't be hacked. I was surprised to see the Democrats oppose that. And I'm kind of curious why, because that seems like one thing they could have gone along with and could have had broad bipartisan support. Hunter, yeah. great question. I uh, appreciate the call. Jocelyn, go ahead and answer. Yeah, first and foremost, the voting machines are not connected to the Internet. That's a falsehood. And the legislation itself right. is, is in some ways, not just legislating off of a lie, but is, is trying to, you know, position lawmakers as if they're doing something against a problem that doesn't actually exist. So it was, it was a posturing bill. It was, um, it was unnecessary, and it was something that was really just, you know, trying to cause a lot of, you know, folks to, to have the reaction that the, the caller just had, you know, and, and yet it, it was, I believe, important for lawmakers. I don't want to speak for those who voted against it, but my perception or my understanding Seeing this as legislation that is purely posturing and is trying to imply somehow that our machines are collect- connected to the internet, which they are not, and that somehow legislation was needed to to ban that, which it wasn't. And so, in 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 supporting or or validating that legislation, you're ultimately validating the strategy behind it, mm-hmm. and uh, and then giving you know lawmakers who are who are purporting it some you know the, some success of essentially legislating off a lie. So that it's it's a really unfortunate 
example of the type of shenanigans that are marking this era and moment right now and are also a reflection of the fact that, you know, there, we, I, I would like to see lawmakers working together to actually develop good policy. Mm-hmm. And what is, is my, my, my team has gone to the table with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to try to explain the actual legislative changes we've needed. And we've, we've been, um, uh, we've, we've not been heard, um, through and, and our, and our input has not been reflected in a lot of the legislation that, the Republican majority or any of the legislation that the Republican majority has submitted, uh, you know, there's there's a need and I think importance of, of promoting bipartisan efforts and supporting bipartisan efforts to pass election legislation mm-hmm. and, and and to not validate, um, you know, one sided efforts uh, to, again, legislate off of lies and, and refuse to work with the other side to develop good solutions. Yeah. I, I, and I want to stress that point again, just just for emphasis voting machines aren't connected to the internet and there's not a reason that they would be. I mean, there's not a logical reason uh, that they would, that they would have to be. So, so Hunter, um, I'm really glad you're listening and I'm really glad you called to participate, but, but wherever you got that information uh, is itself a suspect source. And I think you got to be really careful about where you get information about, our elections and what you believe, because uh, as Jocelyn points out here, there are people who are trying to per- perp- perpetuate uh, untruths as a way of sort of distracting from uh, the actual work of trying to make sure that elections are are in good shape. Uh, again, Hunter, really appreciate the call, though, and the question. Let's go to Zoe in Ferndale really quickly. Zoe, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, hey. Secretary Benson. Good morning, Zoe. So I'm calling in because I wanted to say I moved to Michigan about two years ago, and in that time I have worked as an election worker in five different elections, including November 2020. And the next morning when I woke up and I started seeing all these rumors about things that were happening, a lot of them I could automatically say, well, that's not possible because I'd been there. I'd seen it in person. And you mentioned earlier that one of the best things that you think we can do to kind of dispel all those rumors and really deal with that misinformation is making sure people understand elections ahead of time, especially mm-hmm. since lots of people don't vote. Lots of people only vote every four years. So could you talk more specifically about what exactly is going on in the state of Michigan to make sure that people really understand this process and demystify it for people so that when these things do come up, we can make sure that people understand what truly is possible and not possible. Hmm. Yeah, great question. Uh, yeah, truly. And I think zeroes in on what a lot of the work is and needs to be right now, which is, you know, talking to people and educating citizens all across the state about how elections work, which um, is, is a way to use this next year and the years ahead. You really the space between now and when things intensify again uh, to, to, I think, lay some strong seeds of, 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 of strength. And so I think, and I think that's something everyone can do on two fronts or really, I think I would say three, one, um, sign up to be an election worker uh, and encourage others to do the same. You can go to michigan.gov slash democracy MVP and uh, you'll see firsthand all the procedures and, and, and live firsthand at protecting and enforcing the procedures that are in place, the secure protocol to ensure the accuracy and security of our elections. Uh, and then tell that story. Uh, talk to people. And secondly, talk to people who have been fed lies uh, or simply haven't been exposed to the truth. 
share your experience, share facts and data, listen and respond to their concerns, and point them to trusted sources of information. Like we've set up a website, michigan.gov slash SOS fact check, that consistently responds to misinformation with the truth. Uh, and then, you know, the third thing is, is then to encourage them to serve as election workers. The more people who even attend a training to be an election worker in their local community or contact their local clerk to find out when one is, or attend an accuracy test or tr- where the machines are, are publicly tested for accuracy prior to every election, you know, that, that enables people to see firsthand what we actually do to protect the results of the elections and then empowers them to to tell the truth in future when people try to, you know, dissuade or confuse people about reality. Okay, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, it's always great to have you here with us on the show. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about uh, making sure that our elections stay safe. I always appreciate our, our conversation, Stephen, and <laughs> and I think truly the way out of this moment is for everyone to be engaged, everyone to take responsibility for bringing us through and to find a part they can play in telling the truth and engaging in democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being here. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear from a Republican strategist and a libertarian scholar of democracy about what they're doing to try to call attention to the threats to our elections and the rise of right-wing authoritarianism. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. We're talking today about our democracy and the threats to the idea that our democracy is operated in a fair and open way. After last year's presidential election, we saw a real increase in attacks on our elections process and results mostly from the right side of the political spectrum. Supporters of Donald Trump felt as though he was robbed at the polls and that, in fact, he actually got more votes than Joe Biden did, even though the results showed absolutely that he did not. Since then, we've seen a movement kind of organized around the idea of disrupting the predictable outcome of our elections and to kind of cast perpetual doubt on the idea that uh, we have free and fair elections in this country. We saw that apex really on January 6th at the Capitol uh, where a group of mostly conservative Americans decided to try to disrupt the regular process of counting the votes in the Capitol, making sure that the election is certified and beginning that normal peaceful transfer of power that has defined this country since the beginning. We want to hear from you 
about how you're feeling about all of this? Are you somebody who is doubting the sanctity of our elections process and our democracy as a result of all of these things? Do you have doubts about the way votes are cast or counted in the elections like the one we just had uh, recently here in Michigan? Or are you somebody who fears that these attacks on democracy are an undermining uh, event, uh, something that is really casting doubt about uh, how we kind of hold together uh, as a nation, how we uphold the institutions that define our country. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter to put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We just heard from Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson about the things that she's doing to try to shore up confidence in elections, trying to clean up some of the things that have lingered for a long time that may be opportunities for people to doubt the outcomes of elections and also to push back against some of these efforts, many of them nefarious, to cast doubt uh, on the process. I want to welcome two more voices to the conversation to help us think this issue through. Sarah Longwell is a Republican political strategist and publisher of the conservative news and opinion website, The Bulwark. She is a co-founder of the group called Defending Democracy Together. Sarah, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. And also with us is uh, Sheikha Dalmia. She's a visiting fellow with George Mason University's Mercatus Center, where she has started a new program to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism around the world and here in America. And of course, Sheikha is an old friend of the show here at Detroit Today. Sheikha, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Missed you. (laughs) So, Sarah, I want to start with you. There are plenty of people on all sides of the political spectrum, including progressives, who claim that these claims that democracy is in danger or even the January 6th insurrection uh, are somehow overblown. How real do you think these perceived threats are to our elections and our democracy? I think they're extremely real. And look, I think one of the the ways that it manifests most really is the idea that you've got 70% of people who are Republicans who believe an election was stolen. Uh, When you have that large a percentage of the population believing that, um, you know, things are actually rigged against them, that lack of confidence is a real threat. And it leads to things like the violence you saw on January 6th. And look, you know, I think for people who sort of feel like, well, look, Trump lied about the election, and then we had January 6th. But you know, now things have kind of moved on. It's important to recognize that there is a whole crop of politicians running in 2022, people like Herschel Walker, Carrie Lake for governor of Arizona, uh, Sean Parnell in Pennsylvania, Josh Mandel in Ohio, they are all running on platforms that are about saying that the election was stolen. You know, when Liz Cheney got removed from her post uh, in leadership in the GOP, you know, Kevin McCarthy said she was off message. And what he meant was uh, the contrary message, her saying that the election was free and fair, was, was not the message they were going with in 2022. And so Republicans are going to continue to run a campaign of disinformation going into the next election, and that's going to continue to solidify um, this 
this sense that that Republican voters have that the elections that there's something wrong with our elections. And I think that that, you know, they believe when people stormed the Capitol on January 6th, they believed they were doing so in service mm-hmm. to democracy because they believed that the election was stolen. And so those lies are extremely dangerous and they are persistent. They are still with us and they're going to continue to be featured in upcoming elections. So, Sarah, I also want to give you a chance to talk a little about conservatism. You obviously consider yourself uh, a conservative. Uh, there is something about all this that strikes me, though, as not at all conservative, and yet the people who are doing it, I think, would also identify themselves as Republicans or conservatives. Talk about what is going on on the right side of the political spectrum in our country right now that that we see this kind of split. And and again, I want to point out uh, that there are a lot of Republicans and conservatives who are saying the same thing that you are, that, that somehow... Uh, this has all gone wrong. But but talk some about the other conservatives who are fomenting all of this. Yeah, well, look, I think that, uh, oh, look, Donald, it just comes down to Donald Trump broke in many ways the framework that conservatism was built on, right? I became a conservative, worked my entire life in conservative sort of policy and advocacy, but it meant things like limited government, personal responsibility, fidelity to the Constitution. And Donald Trump kind of came in and, um, you know, bastardized the whole concept of conservative. When sometimes now when people call themselves conservatives, they really don't mean those principles that, that used to undergird conservatism. What they mean is kind of a populist nationalism uh, that, that, is, that is pretty disconnected from conservatives. I mean, Liz Cheney talks about this a lot about you know, the bedrock of conservatism is uh, having free and fair elections, undergirding the functions of our democracy, telling the truth. Um, and, and so much of that has been lost. And so, you know, when I say conservative now, it could mean something completely different from somebody who believes that conservatism is really just means sort of fidelity to Donald Trump. And, you know, one of the things I point out all the time is the Republican Party uh, the, the political vessel for conservatism, when they put out their uh, platform in the 2020 election, it didn't have any planks in it. It didn't stand for anything. It just said, we support Donald Trump. <laughs> and so the ideas that used to undergird this entire movement have largely vanished. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shika, you and I have talked a lot about Donald Trump and the effect he's had on America and on the Republican Party. But but listening to Sarah, I was reminded of uh, the work that you've done to try to put this in, in context, that uh, there is something about this brand of populism, this kind of appeal to authoritarianism that is that has an international uh, audience that that we find in places around the globe, and your new work at George Mason University is really focused uh, uh, on on that phenomenon where it happens abroad and where it happens here. Right. Uh, so you know, for the longer I, you know, as you know, Stephen, that I'm from India, a native of India, and I've. Uh, been part of sort of center-right uh, circles for a long time. I was on the editorial board of the Detroit News for 10 years. 
And, you know, as an immigrant who had come from the world's most populous democracy to the world's uh, oldest democracy, you know, I just thought there were some things that just couldn't happen in America. Uh, It was a strong democracy, uh, you know, 250, 41 years. And, you know, so there were just some bedrock liberal democratic principles like elections, peaceful transfer of power. I just thought were just unquestionable. And Trump uh, put that to rest for me when he got elected by the campaign he ran, which was um, you know, based on a very uh, sort of his own cult appeal, uh, similar to what had happened in India, actually, in 2014, that Prime Minister Modi got elected over there by trashing basic norms of India's liberal democracy and building his own cult following to the point that you know, he could just kind of like get away with anything and his base would stick with him. I just thought like Americans are just too rational and they would never fall for a figure like that. And then lo and behold, we get Trump. And then uh, you know, every time I thought, OK, now he's kind of like reached the bottom and his base is going to wake up. It didn't happen. In fact, what you saw was January 6th, an insurrection, which literally reminded you of some of the scenes from various third world countries, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where uh, basic uh, norms of peaceful transfer of power are disputed. So that got me thinking that this is, you know, this can happen here. Uh, I have come to the conclusion that uh, right wing authoritarianism is the... Uh, challenge of our time. It's the biggest threat that we face going forward. And uh, my institute, my program uh, uh, is dedicated to studying that. One other thing I should mention is that uh, Trump and many of his advisors actually had studied what had happened in Eastern Europe, especially in Hungary and uh, also actually in Western Europe, in Sweden, and looked at what the far-right parties were doing to mainstream themselves. And they had used those as models to uh, workshop Trump's message of America first, his xenophobia, his nativism. So this is a worldwide phenomenon from which America is learning. And so we have to stay on top of that. And I founded this uh, program uh, at the Mercator Center which is doing just that. And uh, I have uh, a substack called The Unpopulist, which is completely free, where you can see, you know, very sort of uh, uh, in real time uh, news and views about what's happening in the world and over here. And the idea is to look at what's happening abroad and to build learning early warning systems here in the United States so that we are not uh, caught flat, flat-footed again. So I also wonder, Shika, what you make of the, the the formalization of this way of thinking about elections and the organizing that's being done around it to try to, you know, influence elections in the future. Here in Michigan, for instance, Republicans are seeking to put people who doubted the outcome of the 2020 election uh, into positions of authority over the next election so that perhaps they might not uh, certify those elections or uh, might uh, alter the count in, in, in some way. Uh, it, it seems to me that that, that represents, uh, by major degree, uh, a much more serious threat than what we saw last year, which you could say was 
a reaction to a particular election. Now it's becoming a formal and, and, and very structured effort to reframe the way we deal with uh, democracy. Tell us, what's, tell us what countries we might look to to see that kind of similar effort and, and what the consequences of it were. Um, it's hard to point to another country with exactly the same experience as uh, the United States because the systems are so different. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is uh, an authoritarian, you know, toolkit that all authoritarian, modern day authoritarians use. Look, now, you know, when I was growing up in India, uh, the darkest chapter in India's history was emergency, which was Prime Minister Indira Gandhi for 18 months had, uh, you know, suspended the constitution, arrested opposition leaders, cracked down on the press. It was all very dramatic and very draconian. And, but because she did it so openly, a sort of a mobilization of the opposition and the resistance was possible. Those are not the tactics that modern day authoritarians are using. They are much, much more subtle. Uh, they undermine the independence of the judiciary. They stack uh, civil servants with loyalists. Uh, they uh, don't protect, they don't provide equal protection of the law to vulnerable minorities. In fact, I'm having a panel discussion on Wednesday with Freedom House to discuss some of these tools. And that's kind of what you are seeing here in the United States. It's not, you know, it's not sort of the old fashioned method of executive coups or military coups. It's sort of a hollowing out of democracy from the inside that we have to worry about. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Republicans are at the stage where they have realize that they can win election by winning the electoral college and they don't have to win the popular vote. So that's the first very dangerous thing is this polarization strategy that they are pushing. The other dangerous thing is what's happening abroad is just uh, as over there, you know, they are stacking um, uh, Secretary of State's offices with their loyalists. I mean, the one reason Georgia held against Trump was the Secretary of State over there mm -hmm. basically didn't uh, uh, succumb to his pressure to give him the votes that he needed. Uh, I think your previous guest voted, uh, noted Carrie Lake, who is uh, Trump's candidate for uh, Arizona governor. And she's on record having said that uh, if she were the governor of Arizona, she wouldn't have certified that vote. And the problem, and I ran actually this really good piece uh, on my Substack by Andy Craig, who's with the Cato Institute, who points out that, uh, you know, at the lower level, when there is a dispute about the actual vote count, courts can step in and do something about it. It gets very, very hard as uh, election subversion reaches higher levels of political office. So if a governor just decides to, you know, face the contempt of court and say they are not going to certify election, there's not much that courts can do. Similarly with Congress, if Congress just decides that, you know, they are just not going to, uh, you know, certify the electors. That, and I think that's the constitutional crisis we have to worry about. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Sarah Longwell and Sheikha Dalmia. We will get back to your phone calls as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here. Anthony in southwest Detroit, Lewis in Detroit, Maurice in Detroit will hear 
from you. Again, if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that uh, you've joined us. We're talking this hour about the threats to uh, the threats to democracy, the threats to our elections that we've seen grow since last year's presidential election, where Donald Trump said, in fact, the election was stolen from him, that he got more votes than Joe Biden did, even though every review of the elections has shown that that's not so. Uh, on January 6th, we saw Trump supporters attack the U.S. Capitol and try to prevent the Congress from certifying the results of the election. And since then, we've seen kind of a movement grow up around the idea of organizing to change the structure of our elections, change the people who are in charge of managing and running our elections in a way that would be more sympathetic to people who have real doubts about uh, the way elections go. As always, uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation. What do you think of these efforts to uh, to undermine uh, our, our democracy, to reframe the idea of our elections? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter. Uh, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. I want to play another clip from Robert Costa's appearance on Fresh Air recently uh, that I think really helps, again, frame this conversation out a little bit. He's talking here about the Eastman memo, which sought to lay out a path for Trump and the GOP to overturn the election by using uh, alternative alternate slates of elections. Here he's talking about Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah and his doubts that they can pull this off. He presses the White House about the Eastman memo and goes, we can't do this because there are no alternate slates of electors. But I would just urge people to think about this. Imagine if in January 2025, Republicans are much more organized and they have alternate slates of electors ready in many states. What happens then? What happens then? Uh, that is a real foreshadowing, I think, of at least the potential challenge that we're facing uh, from these doubts that people are casting on uh, elections and election outcomes. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go to Lewis in Detroit. Lewis, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thanks hey. so much for having me on. Um, yeah. My my question was mainly about voter ID. And, and maybe I can give you a quick synopsis of what I'm talking about. Um, I became a U.S. citizen roughly two years before the election last year. Um, I, you know, I stay very close to the news and, and I'm actually watching a lot of Fox to really understand what's going on on the other side. And it's really difficult because 
we're so polarized right now that some of us say no voter uh, ID laws at all. And some of us are saying, hey, we got to control the system somehow. So uh, from the perspective of somebody who grew up in Colombia and who obviously were a centralist system as opposed to, you know, state uh, centralized system here in the U.S., mm-hmm. can we set up uh, or agree, you know, come together on a referendum to agree liberals and conservatives to have a national ID in order to be able to say to people, as soon as you're born, you're being given a birth certificate, you are automatically registered, and by the time you're eight years old, you have an ID, so that mm-hmm. by the time you're 18, you automatically get it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I also give you uh, a little bit of my background. I'm in the city of Detroit. I, I'm working in the inner city. And I had a case about six or nine months ago where we're trying to get uh, a license for a, a, a young woman. She had just turned 18 or 19, mm-hmm. and she had come from a, a troubled environment where her birth certificate was missing. And it was a complete disaster for us to go from uh, requesting school mm-hmm. uh, records to going to the Lansing to be able to get her birth certificate even you know, more so than getting her uh, a driver's license, uh, a state ID. So it's one of those deals where I'm saying, hey, can we make it automatic so that we stop this dilemma where we're saying, you know, no more uh, uh, restrictions, you know, because everyone has a national ID. Lewis, that's a really fascinating idea. And and your experience with uh, this, this employee, I think, is who you were talking about is is everything i mean the the stories that you hear about the challenges to people getting proper id to be able to vote or to be able to have a job uh, they're, they're everywhere and especially in uh, in immigrant communities uh, here in detroit you hear a lot of those stories sarah longwell i'll start with you what do you think of the idea of a national id to clear up this whole idea of uh, a voter ID that that is getting, uh, you know, causing a lot of arguments in a lot of different states. Yeah, this is such a good question, and it's one of these things where there really is a compromise solution that I think common sense people could get behind. There are both, and, and frankly, right now there is um, the For the People Act has been significantly pared down, and Joe Manchin has proposed a compromise bill that includes some of these ideas, and and one of them is something called automatic voter registration which is a national voter registry that would automatically register to you to vote when you turn 18 if you're an American Mm -hmm. citizen. Mm -hmm. I think that is a very good idea. And then if you pair that with voter ID laws, you know, yeah, you have a voting card. Everybody gets one when they turn 18. Um, And Joe Manchin's current compromise bill does include some voter ID provisions, which Stacey Abrams has endorsed because voter ID provisions are very popular and they are one way, as long as they aren't too strict, um, and they aren't sort of like targeted in a suppressive way, there are really good common sense solutions to some of these problems. We do want people to be confident in our system. We do want our election system to be secure. Um, and there are, there are ways that we could do this. The problem right now is that we are so polarized uh, that there is just no appetite. You know, Joe Manchin really worked hard to get this compromise solution on the table. And even Republicans, you know, like Mitt Romney, people that I respect who've been doing the right thing, just aren't even debating it with them. They're not even engaging with it. Uh, and and I really think that and instead, you know, they're pushing a lot of these bills at the state level um, that, 
you know, in many ways are just counterproductive to getting people into the system and voting. And Republicans should support this. Just look at what happened in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin decided to be very pro-vote by mail, very pro-early voting. He encouraged people to vote. Mm -hmm. And as a result, he had massive turnout. And so, um, you know, there are solutions to this. And I think that as American citizens, we have to start demanding that our elected officials work together to come to come together on some of this because they're out there. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Lewis, really appreciate the call and the questions. Let's go to Maurice in Detroit. Maurice, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's an entirely possible that these extreme Republicans' efforts on the inside, you know, to get people to sort of internally overturn the election will fail. What I'm more concerned about is is two things. One is that there have been absolutely no consequences for January 6th. I mean, you know, groups like the, the Boogaloo Boys and Proud Boys, they can still have meetings, they mm-hmm. still raise money, etc. Um, so there aren't there weren't hard consequences um, uh, for for those actions. And two, which I think some of the callers have demonstrated, there's been so much misinformation and damage done. I mean, a mm-hmm. previous caller thought that uh, the voting machines connected to the internet. The last yeah. caller thinks that voter ID actually helps protect, like that there's a problem that's solved by voter ID. What I think that this all leads to is that even if, uh, you know, the, the election is certified in the correct way, and let's say Joe Biden overwhelmingly wins, uh, which is entirely possible, there would be massive, January 6th would, would then be a test not for stealing the election, but for massive violence across the country. Yeah. Um, so, so, Maurice, I don't, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I do want to give uh, our guest uh, a chance to respond, and we're running out of time. Sheikha, uh, I, I, Maurice's question really is, once you go down this road, can you, can you go back? We've only got about 30 seconds for you to, to answer, but, but Give us a yeah, sense so, yeah. yeah, so, you know, I wouldn't be worried if uh, Joe Biden wins, uh, wins with a convincing majority. I'm more worried on in either direction. Uh, you know, if Republicans win with a small, uh, with a slim margin or Joe Biden wins with a, slow, a small margin, I think all the strategies that at least Republicans are gaming right now for that eventuality, that uh, uh, Trump wins the electoral college vote but loses the popular college, or vice versa, mm-hmm. uh, or that Biden wins with a very slim majority. I think that's when uh, these uh, election subversion efforts, the stacking of the deck with loyalist and alternative elector uh, strategy, all of that will come into play then. I think the one way to avoid that is to give uh, either side a convincing uh, victory. Okay. Uh, Sarah Longwell and Sheikha Damlia. We never have enough time for these great conversations, but uh, I'm really grateful to both of you for uh, coming by today to help us think this through. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with the author of a new book about expulsions and suspensions here in Detroit and the damage that kind of punishment can do to students. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.